Once you understand what the origin of the disease is or the disorder, then it becomes, to us, it becomes extremely clear how you can effectively manage cancer without toxicity. You just have to pull the plug on the two fuels that drive the fermentation metabolism while transitioning the entire body over to fatty acids and ketones that the tumor cells cannot use for fuel. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski. Today's podcast is everything about cancer. If you or anyone you know has ever uh, experienced cancer or suffered through cancer, you're going to want to pay attention, listen to this podcast, grab a pen, grab a piece of paper, take some notes, because this is an absolute game changer. Uh, a man who has led the way in cancer research for a number of years now, Tom Seafree, Dr. Tom Seafree joins me today, and we really uncover the metabolic truth of cancer, cancer as a metabolic disease, not certainly a genetic disease, and uh, one that seems to be absolutely preventable, absolutely treatable, and something that I hope we can all cure across the board in the future. Um, Dr. Tom Seafried is a professor at Boston College. He's been doing this for over 30 years. Uh, he's studied all the way back to uh, Otto Warburg, uh, through Hans Krebs, all these just icons in the science world when it comes to metabolism and understanding metabolism. And his lab has recently discovered the two pathways that are driving cancer, ultimately the fermentation process that we need to prevent. And we're going to describe that and ultimately how to overcome it in this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for being here. I always appreciate you being a listener of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast, being a part of our amazing community. Listeners of this podcast are certainly people who want to pursue personal excellence, personal performance, and ultimately get the most out of every single day. I often talk about an optimized daily experience as being the objective. What should I be doing from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed? And this is something you may want to consider adding to your yearly repertoire, certainly a ketogenic approach to uh, optimization of life. And Dr. Tom Seyfried is going to tell us about that and so much more. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Bioptimizers. Yet again, coming back at you with an incredible offer. Mag Breakthrough, for the longest period of time, this product has been in my medicine cabinet, in my vitamin drawer. And it's something I just take every day. I give it to my kids now every day uh, because I think magnesium is just so depleted in our food supply. If you're at all stressed, if you're at all training hard, uh, magnesium is going to be something you're going to want to add in. The thing I love about Mag Breakthrough is that it's got seven different chelates, so I can get all these different types of magnesium or all these different types of absorption rates, and they tend to work or affect different tissues in different ways. And I really like that. Uh, and some work for other, for some people, and some work for others. And with seven different chelates, you're going to get full coverage of magnesium uh, to be fully optimized. So shout out to Bioptimizers, that's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com, bioptimizers.com slash muscle intelligence, or just go to bioptimizers.com, use the code MUSCLE10 for their entire product line, which now is just so extensive, everything from their new amazing Newtopia products, Mag Breakthrough, and everyone should be taking mass Symes as well. Capex is a product we absolutely love. They've got some incredible collagen uh, products as well. Ladies and gents, enjoy this podcast. And when you're done, head over to bioptimizers.com and check out our amazing show sponsors. 
Dr. Tom Seyfried, thank you very much for joining me, sir. As I mentioned just before recording, I'm a massive fan of your work and look forward to digging into understanding cancer as a metabolic disease. Well, thank you very much, Ben. It's nice to be here. I appreciate you making the time. I'm sure many of my listeners may have heard you on Peter Tia's podcast, as well as many other places where your information is present. I think it's incredibly powerful what you're doing. I think the world uh, needs to understand more about the metabolic implications of health, as well as the metabolic implications of cancer in general. And it seems like your uh, study and your evolution of understanding of cancer as met metabolic diseases has actually evolved a lot in the last few years, certainly since the first time you were on Peter's podcast, which I think was 2018. Um, so I'd love to maybe ha have you give a bit of a background into how you got into understanding cancer, which you did on his podcast, and then we could, we could shift into some deeper conversation. Yeah, well, thank you, Ben. You know, I, I, I've been here at BC for uh, 30, almost 35 years. And uh, before that, I was at Yale University in New Haven uh, for nine years. So, um, but I, I didn't really get into cancer as a metabolic disease until around uh, the year 2000. Most of the time I was doing basic biochemistry of epilepsy, brain development, and cancer, but not not in the context of knowing about its origin or trying to manage it. We started. We 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 had done a lot of work in the field of epilepsy. I was uh, head of the ketogenic diet special interest group for epilepsy, where ketogenic diets have been used to manage epilepsy since the 1920s by Wilder at the Mayo Clinic. And um, it was only because water-only fasting would reduce epileptic seizures, and you could only do that for a certain period of time uh, before the patient would expire from starvation. Mm -hmm. So he developed a diet that would behave, uh, cause blood work to change in the way water-only fasting would do that. And lo and behold, many of the epileptic seizures disappeared or were managed to become far fewer in, in incidence. Um, but, you know, we had been doing analysis of uh, angiogenesis and cancer and calorie restriction and looking at calorie restrictions, reducing of angiogenesis, which is abnormal vasculature of tumors. But then we started to find out that what is calorie restriction or water-only fasting was having a tremendous effect on these tumors and the mice. And uh, at the same time, we were doing ketogenic diets and calorie restriction for epilepsy. So we just said we had uh, the best animal models for both epileptic seizures as well as various models for brain cancer, and um, which we developed here at Boston College, first at Yale University and then at Boston College to do mostly biochemistry work on these things. But then we started to get into the management phase of, of looking at what's going on. You know, what is, how, how is it possible that calorie restriction in the mouse, which is comparable to water-only fasting in the human, was having such a profound effect on blood vessel, reducing blood vessels, killing the tumor cells, reducing inflammation, doing all these different kinds of things. And at the same time, in a different, completely different model, was managing epileptic seizures in mice that had seizures. Now, we, we never really figured out how the, the, these diets were managing epileptic seizures. We only knew one thing that was very interesting in both kids, children, and the epileptic mice, that is, if you maintain low, steady blood sugar, uh, it seemed like the seizures would be managed. Uh, even even uh, the ketones, even if they were up, uh, they, they didn't always have to be at the same level. They just had to be elevated. But it seemed like 
And then every now and then a, a kid that was managed with seizures for long periods of time would take a bite of a cookie or a, a juice and within a few minutes explode into a, a violent seizure. So, and the blood sugar would spike at that. The moment the sugar elevated, the seizure appeared in many of the cases or within a half an hour of the, uh, of the spike. It was very, it was very uh, quick onset, despite the fact that the seizures had been managed for such a long period of time. And we also knew that any child that liked large amounts of ketogenic diet, uh, they're very rare that you find anybody who likes this stuff. But every now and then you got a kid that liked it and they were unable, uh, he, he, those children were unable to manage their epileptic seizures because they ate so much fat, their blood sugars couldn't go down. It was linked to insulin insensitivity. And we, and we found the exact same thing in the, in the mouse as well. So when we shifted over more to the metabolic management of cancer, we, we had a, a vast knowledge base of diet work for epilepsy. And we knew about ketogenic diets for epilepsy. We knew about calorie restriction. So then when we started to look at the outcome of cancer in the brain or in other areas, we could then follow biomarker changes in the body with uh, changes in the, in the, uh, the tumor, how, how big it was, how far it metastasized, and these kinds of things. So we, we, that's how we, we got into it. And then, and then gradually it became clear that I was trained as a biochemical geneticist at the University of Illinois. So I, and I did a lot of mouse genetics in my career. And of course, everyone had been indoctrinated into the worldview that cancer was a genetic disease. But when I saw the changes in metabolism and changing glucose and ketones and how powerful it was in managing cancer, the, the growth of these tumor cells and in both humans and in mice, I began to question the whole concept of the what the National Cancer Institute and the world pretty pretty much think what cancer is. And then it became clear to me that these genes are all downstream effects, these gene mutations uh, of effects of a disturbed energy metabolism. So it's the disturbed energy metabolism that actually causes the genetic abnormalities, making the entire cancer industry and field seriously question because most of their new therapies, the way they treat patients and these kinds of things are based on the dogmatic view that cancer is a genetic disease. And I did some studies uh, uh, with nuclear transfer, mitochondrial transfer experiments, reviewing these kinds of studies that completely undermines this whole view that cancer is a genetic disease. So once you make up your mind that this is not a genetic disease, and then you begin to look at all the kinds of treatments that people are given for, uh, for cancer management, like the immunotherapies and radiation, chemo, and all this kind of stuff. It's all based on, on the somatic mutation theory of cancer, which is flawed. It's, it's, it's no longer a credible explanation for the disease. It's clearly a metabolic disease. As Otto Warburg originally said, uh, Warburg clearly argued in the, in the 1920s and 30s that cancer was a, a metabolic-type disease. And we have solidified what Warburg said and then took it one greater step forward and showed that what the actual fuels are that are fermented to generate energy within the tumor cell. So now it becomes clear how to manage cancer. Once you understand what the origin of the disease is or the disorder, then it becomes, to us, it becomes extremely clear how you can effectively manage cancer without toxicity. You just have to pull the plug on the two fuels that drive the fermentation metabolism while transitioning the entire body over to 
fatty acids and ketones that the tumor cells cannot use for fuel. So you simply marginalize their, their existence in the body and slowly degrade them. And you can do that for, with a variety of different approaches that we're currently investigating here in the lab, dosage, timing, and scheduling. So it's a long process. You know, you don't wake up one day and say, hey, you know, I'm going to overturn the entire cancer industry. It, it, it pretty much comes gradually as you, as you read other papers and you do the experiments yourself in the lab and things become more and more clear as to, as to what's actually going on. So coming back here for a sec, Tom. So just to summarize and, and make sure I'm accurate on something you said there, it sounds like while a low carbohydrate, carbohydrate restricted diet is an important or, or no carbohydrate diet is an important piece, it all, also must be in a caloric deficit because these children are overeating on the fats. That caused the insulin resistance well, to kick. In children, you have to be very, very careful because they're at a growth. They're growing. They're growing, and uh, it becomes um, a, a care. That's why our our dietitians and nutritionists that work in the epilepsy field, like Beth Zupek Kenya, uh, um, Helen Cross, and, and a variety of others, um, when you when you work with kids, you you have to balance the nutritional capabilities of the diet with the ability of the diet to maintain seizure control. So um, it, it's it's not as simple as you think. Um, uh, you, you really and the kids, of course, are the parents make very uh, the parents are in control of the child's diet and health. So they're they're work, walking the fine line of not disturbing natural normal development while at the same time trying to prevent breakthrough seizures. So uh, again, if you're too aggressive. Uh, you you could uh, un- undermine the nutritional capabilities of the diet, so you have to be very careful. You don't want to cause you don't want to cause growth retardation. Uh, you, you don't want to lead to uh, adverse effects. So it's a it's a balancing act, uh, a nutritional a, a micro and macro nutrient balancing act for kids. You, adults have a you have a lot of, uh, you, you can do a lot more. You're not worried about the the growth the growth issues any longer. You're just worried about you know maintaining seizure control. Now, right. in the adults, they don't. They would prefer drugs than ketogenic diets. They have free will now. They're not controlled by their parents any longer. So, if there's a drug that could manage an epileptic seizure, they pr- prefer to take that than do the diet. But I, I know many adults who, who do a combination of both. As far as uh, the follow-up question to that was, is does it seem as though that a ketogenic diet is effective for all types of cancer at all stages, or is it specific cancers that tend to be resistant to it? Well, what we're finding now, it, it, it's almost the diet, as long as it's a nutritious diet, it doesn't really make any difference what you eat. We developed the glucose ketone index uh, calculator, which pretty much says that if you can get your glucose ketone ratio in the blood down to 2.0 or below, it, it's, it serves as a powerful inhibitor of cancer growth. So if, if a person can do that on a vegan diet, a carnivore diet, a pescatarian diet, a ketogenic diet, a Mediterranean diet, doesn't make any difference. Mm. Um, we use ketogenic diets are simply a, maybe a little bit easier to do it that way, uh, but not to say that a, ve- a vegan diet, uh, as vegan diets are harder to do it, it, it's more difficult. It takes longer because there's more carbs in plants than there is in animal fat, animals protein. Yeah, but can you describe that ratio exactly? So I just want to understand that. Yeah, so it, it, it's the ratio of blood glucose in millimolar to blood ketones in millimolar. The the meter, the uh, keto mojo meter. Do, Dominic uses this. Yeah, all the, Dominic is constantly in 
Dominic is somebody that's in constant ketosis. Uh, he's always measuring his his uh, ratios. But but you you can get it from Amazon, uh, the glucose ketone index monitor from Keto Mojo, and you have to take a, 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 a you, you stick your finger and you get a drop of blood, and uh, with one strip it'll tell you what the glucose level is, and with a, with another strip it'll tell you what the ketone level is, and it's simply the ratio of glucose to ketones, and if you can get 1.0 or below, where meaning that the ratio of glucose to ketones in the blood is is uh, equal or that ketones are actually higher than glucose then the tumor cells if you have if you are someone with cancer then the tumor cells are struggling for their existence under those conditions they need the, they absolutely need the glucose as a fuel and they can't burn or use ketones or fatty acids as a fuel so so when you when you take these diets in you look at your blood work and you see what your uh, what your ratio of, of blood glucose to ketone is and generally, what we see in the cancer is that once the patient, and I don't do this, I'm not a physician, so I don't treat any patients, but my, co- my physician colleagues do. And uh, what we see is that once the, can- once the patient can be into a GKI ratio of 2.0 or below, then we add on some additional drugs and procedures that will target glutamine, the other fuel that's used as a, as a, a, as a fermentable fuel. You have to do that very carefully because glutamine is, is an important amino acid. Hyperbaric oxygen now becomes a, a procedure. So we, we developed the, the, um, uh, a press pulse concept for, for managing cancer that incorporates all of the things that I'm saying. Uh, we published this, the framework of it, giving physicians a clear conceptual idea of the method that you would use to manage cancer. And now we're fleshing it out with a very detailed, comprehensive treatment protocol that we have yet to publish. But we're working on that. But the the framework for press pulse metabolic therapy, you can press glucose down very, very low uh, without harming the body, as long as the body can burn ketones, um, which is an evolutionary adaptation to low blood sugar. But the cancer cells absolutely need the glucose where the body can can switch from glucose to ketones. So they don't need the, the glucose as, as importantly as the cancer does, the cancer cells do. So once they're in that zone, then you can start chipping away at them, uh, at their glutamine and, uh, and hyperbaric oxygen now causes oxidative stress and starts killing, killing cancer cells using oxidative. That, w- that could replace radiation therapy as, a, as an alternative. Radiation kills cancer by oxidative stress, but it also damages local tissues, whereas hyperbaric oxygen will, will strike only the cancer cells, enhancing the health of the, of the normal tissue as long as the patient is in a state of therapeutic ketosis. So I'd love to hear more about this glutamine pathway. So obviously not consuming dietary glutamine may lead us to reducing dietary protein. Is, is that a belief? Uh, it I don't and know. And because Dom, Dom yeah, tends yeah, to move no, a lot. We're, we're testing that right now. Um, the glutamine issue is very interesting. Um, the cancer cells need the glutamine, but so do your, your normal immune system, your gut, your recycle. We, we, it's a very essential amino acid for so many physiological properties, but we, that's why we pulse it. Um, we, ta- we take drugs that can target glutamine utilization, but we use them very strategically and for a short period of time. What drug is that, Tom? Uh, well, right now we're using 60-oxy-norleucine Don. Um, it's, an, it's not approved. It, it was used in little kids with leukemias, and it was used for a variety of other cancer patients in phase two trials, 
but they said it was too toxic. And the problem is they gave it in too high of a dose without uh, knowing that you could massively enhance the therapeutic potential if the patient is in a, thera- a state of therapeutic ketosis. Mm-hmm. Consequently, the dosages that you need are now much, much lower. So the toxicity now issue becomes a non-issue. So again, without knowing how to use the tools that are available and understanding the biology and biochemistry of the problem, you can be throwing out very important drugs uh, that when used in a different context can have superpower. And as a matter of fact, we just found out that for another drug, Divimistat, which is a, a drug that was used for human pancreatic cancer, and I think it's still in some trials, but the results have been uh, not good. The patients did not respond really well, and they're reconsidering whether this is going to be a, val- a valuable drug. Well, we, we took that drug, Divimistat, and we have a model for pediatric high-grade glioma for children. We tested the drug by itself on our uh, preclinical model for pediatric high-grade glioma, and like they found in the humans for pancreatic cancer, it didn't do anything. However, when we used a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet uh, with Divimistat, it was unbelievably powerful, and we have to, and we used far lower dosaging. The dosages now could be reduced to very, very minimal dosages. Um, what happens is the ketogenic diet acts as a facilitator to facilitate the delivery of drugs to target, which is really remarkable. So not only does it lower the blood sugar, it, 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 act, it acts as a facilitator of, of drug delivery to the target. Therefore, you don't need nearly as much drug, and the drug that gets to the target is super powerful. Can you talk about that a little bit? That's, I'm curious how that is, or do you know mechanistically what's going on? Well, for brain, we've shown for two small mice, and it's not, it, we, it seems to facilitate delivery through the blood-brain barrier of small molecules. The exact mechanism by which that happens is not known. Uh, I had a grant to look into this, but it, it, for whatever reason, it wasn't approved. But what we do, what we do know, is when we look at the brain of mice that have had these drug treatments in the presence or absence of ketogenic diets, we find threefold more drug on target when the drug is in the brain on the, on the on the tumor when administered with the ketogenic diet. So clearly, uh, it's facilitating delivery of small molecules through the blood-brain barrier. Um, you know, we, we could figure out later on what the mechanism would be, but, but the effect is clearly obvious and documented. So, uh, so this then becomes a real important way to deliver small molecules, I think, to children and adults. In fact, in adults, we've done it in both, in both pediatric and adults, um, a, a way to kill cancer cells, again, uh, very powerful with minimal toxicity. Uh, again, the whole thing for managing cancer is you want to annihilate the tumor cells gradually without causing any uh, harm to any normal cells or tissues in the body. And, and we can do we can do this. This is what the future will be. Yeah. And I think that kind of ties in my next question. So my, my question was targeting specific cancer cells without doing damage to uh, healthy cells. And I think it ties back to your mention of Otto Weber. Again, I'd love to have you talk about what the Warburg effect is, and ultimately, what was he studying 100 years ago? I think our audience would know something about it, but yeah. not an enormous amount. Yeah, well, uh, Sam Apple, uh, a New York Times, he, he wrote the book, Ravenous, uh, The History of Otto Warburg. I I have his biography by Hans Krebs um, 
Otto Warbons Krebs of the Krebs cycle. Yeah, you know he's he, uh, he 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 was a he 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 was a postdoctoral associate with Otto Warburg. Wow. I worked closely with Richard Veach, the the late Richard Veach. He passed yep. away a couple of years ago. Veach and I would speak all about this constantly. Veach was Hans Krebs's last student, hmm. so I had an opportunity to speak with Veach, and of course Krebs knew Warburg real well. And so I had this kind of a train of, of connection between Warburg, Krebs, to Veach, to me. But uh, I, I read Warburg's work very, very carefully. Uh, I looked at, at many, many of his, of his papers. I, re- I replicated um, much of what, what he has found. His argument was that all cancer cells are initiated by uh, a shift in energy metabolism from using oxygen to using uh, energy without oxygen. And energy without oxygen is fermentation. If you jog or if you sprint or swim fast or whatever, your muscles will burn energy faster than the oxygen can 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 relieve can relieve the uh, the lactic acid deficit. So we are um, we are all of our bodies contain the uh, uh, the glycolytic pathway where, uh, like for example, in an epileptic seizure. The blood fills up with lactic acid. Brain throws out tremendous lactic acid mm. because sometimes the b- person stops breathing during the epileptic seizure, and you get tremendous lactic acid buildup. But this is only temporary. As soon as oxygen comes back into the system, the systems rest- re- re- are restored to um, using oxygen, mm. oxidative phosphorylation, uh, energy through oxygen. During a heart attacks, you know, we we stop breathing. The heart stops pumping blood. And you see tremendous lactic acid, and the other uh, a product of the glut- glutaminolysis pathway, the glutamine waste waste product, is succinic acid. Mm-hmm. So you see lactic acid and succinic acid build up in the bloodstream very rapidly uh, when during uh, brief heart. Obviously, these are heart attacks that would be where 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 function would be restored. So we see that those are the waste products of fermentation, but they they provide tremendous quick energy. But they, it cannot be sustained. It's not a non-sustainable. You can only do this for a short period of time in normal cells. The cancer cell does this as a constant, permanent, locked-in fermentation. So, And that didn't happen overnight. It took long periods of time, as Warburg said, long period of time to replace oxidative phosphorylation uh, with substrate-level phosphorylation, which is energy without uh, oxygen. Right. So the can- the cancer cells and and every major cancer that we have looked at are all fermenters, lung cancer, colon cancer, bladder cancer, breast cancer. Uh, they're all the similar. They all ferment. So that means they're all the same. Very similar. You can use the same strategy to kill cancer no matter what organ or what tissue it happens to be in. We have found I I did massive studies looking for any cancer cell that would have a normal structure and function of the mitochondria. And I have found none. None of the major cancers that we know of has normal function of mitochondria. That means they're getting their energy from fermentation. What does that mean? They ferment. They get energy without oxygen, right? This is what Warburg showed. He showed that a rat that it would have a tumor, if you gave the rat cyanide, cyanide blocks oxfos instantly. That's why, you know, the James Jones, they drank the Kool-Aid and they all died very rapidly from the cyanide. But you can give a, ra- a tumor-bearing rat cyanide, it kills the rat instantly, but the tumor cells are unaffected by the cyanide. Mm. And, and we did the same thing in our, in our lab here. We showed these tumor cells live without oxygen, they can live in cyanide. 
So how are they living without oxygen? They're fermenting. That means energy without oxygen. And then we interrogated all of the different fuels to figure out what are the fuels that drive the fermentation. And the two fuels are the sugar glucose and the amino acid glutamate. We, none, of the, none of the other amino acids uh, you know, or sugars can do this. Um, uh, and you have to have two things. You have, you have to have uh, an ability to use these fuels, and you have to have a logistic issue, which is the abundance of the fuel in the micro environment. So yes, the cancer cell can ferment a little bit of some asparagine uh, or one of these other. The problem is there's none of that around. And in order to drive the beast, you have to have a sufficient level of fuel uh, when oxygen is not there. And the most abundant fuels massively are glucose and glutamine. So those are the two fuels that are driving the majority of cancers. So they can't use, we have not found any cancer cell that can replace glucose and glutamine with fatty acids or ketone bodies. Right. Probably. So it becomes very clear how to manage cancer. Yeah, would it make sense, and again, this, this may be a shot in the dark, but that the, the initiation of the cancer cell happens in a part of the body where oxygen is not properly being delivered to that part of the body? Is that something that's been studied? And I'm curious, yeah. where you're, is it, does that make sense? Absolutely. We, we, Warburg showed that intermittent hypoxia. Uh, will chronically chronically damage oxidative phosphorylation. There's two things that has to ha that have to happen. Number one, the damage must be chronic. It cannot be acute. Acute damage, like cyanide, kills the cell. You can never get a, a cancer cell from a dead cell. Number two, the cell has to be able to adapt and transition to fermentation metabolism itself. So we have some cells in our body that rarely, if ever, form cancer neurons of the brain, cardiac myocytes, these kinds of cells cannot survive on fermentation metabolism. So you rarely have ever find tumors from brain neurons or from cardiac myocytes because they do not have the capacity or capability to prolong, to survive under prolonged fermentation. They die. So they die. So you have to have cells that have the capability of slow adaptation from an oxygen-driven metabolism to a fermentation-driven metabolism. And those are most of the organs in our body. So lung can do this, liver can do this, breast can do this, colon can do this. All of these cells have the capacity to shift from oxphos to fermentation, whereas neurons of the brain, cardiac myocytes, and even some skeletal muscles, that uh, they can't form. So when you hear sarcoma, means a muscle cancer, but it's actually the, the sheaths around the muscle. It's not the, it's not the uh, um, uh, striated muscle cells themselves. So again, you have to, this is the process. So once you understand this, uh, then, it, then you have a clear path for management because you really know what their weakness is. You really know how to shift the body's energy metabolism uh, away from carbohydrates into fats and ketone bodies, making the cancer cells vulnerable. And then you come in with low-dose drugs that are, uh, are that become highly strategic and and powerful uh, when administered under the right condition, and the results that we're getting in both the preclinical models, dogs, uh, humans that do this, it's unbelievable. So uh, it's the future. It, yes. It's it's just going to take time for the establishment to recognize and the people themselves uh, to recognize that this cancer, most of these aggressive cancers, can in fact be be manageable. And I don't like the term terminal uh, cancer. Who, why, who says it's terminal? Did you try metabolic therapy on this? I can't tell you how many stage four cancer patients are out there for a variety of different tissues, and they're all doing, they're still alive. 
Are they cured? I have no idea. But they're, they're living a hell of a lot longer uh, than they would have ever lived or were predicted to live by, by, by the oncology community. So it can't be as simple as optimization of mitochondrial function systemically, right? That sounds like a vast oversimplification. If we can get the mitochondria producing energy more effectively systemically, the body's less likely to switch over to these uh, fermentation processes. There's got to be some other uh, factors that play in, right? So I, I would assume that people who are highly aerobically fit and anaerobically fit still have predispositions of cancer. I can't imagine that just well, kind of wipes it out. I, I, think, I, I think that's true to some extent, but the incidents are, are generally much less. Like obesity has now replaced smoking as one of the highest risk factors for, for cancer. Yeah. Most folks that are really fit, like the CrossFit guys and, and these people that are that are really, you know, aerobic, they do a lot of exercise, they eat, they eat the right foods, highly nutritious foods, uh, restricted and this kind of thing. Their incidence of cancer is generally much, much less than those folks that don't do any of these kinds of things. We know what the origin of cancer is, and that is damage to oxidative phosphorylation. And that could be due to viral infections. You can give papillomavirus, hepatitis C, they will damage mitochondria, intermittent hypoxia, sleep apnea, uh, chronic inflammation. Well, one has to be careful over-exercising or, or taking all kinds of supplements and things. You, you have to be always, always cognizant of the influence on other on what we call general metabolic homeostasis. But I would say in general, those who are fit, eat right, exercise, their risk of cancer is generally far, far less uh, than those folks that are morbidly obese and have a number of other risk factors like type 2 diabetes uh, and, and these kinds of things. So there's a clear uh, uh, relationship between these physiological states. So it sounds like you've mentioned general metabolic homeostasis. You it sounds like there, if there's a shift in either direction, that can potentially be. You know, I don't, I don't know uh, precisely about that. All I know is that if you if you can keep your mitochondria healthy by whatever diet and lifestyle you have, uh, the probability of getting cancer is extremely rare. Uh, how do we know this? We know this by looking at the uh, at the health status of folks on the planet. Aboriginal tribes who follow their traditional diet and lifestyle. And that was clearly documented by the uh, humanitarian physician, Albert Schweitzer, when he evaluated these various African tribes that, le that lived according to their traditional ways. And I think he had 40,000 evaluations and not one case of cancer, clearly uh, uh, these kinds of tribes, and this is known for the aboriginals of Australia, this is known for the rainforest people, and, and this was known for the Eskimos, or I should say the Inuits, these folks. Cancer was extremely rare in traditional uh, groups of people. It's very hard to get cancer. I mean, you really have to abuse the hell out of your body to get cancer. But, you know, we, we evolved uh, 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 for hundreds of thousands of years in a paleolithic diet lifestyle where carbs were not part, carbo, high carbohydrate, purely, uh, poorly processed or uh, processed foods, high carbohydrate processed foods, did not exist in, in our environment for hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, you know, we were a, a gathering, we had plenty of exercise. You're always looking for something to eat. It's, we, you can go back and read the, the paleolithic literature on how we as a species survived. Uh, the Neolithic period, we began to cultivate grains, which obviously led to the formation of civilizations. 
around of, 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 of food sources, rice and, and corn and wheat and this kind of thing. But then within the last 80 or, or 90 years or, or less even, we started to develop highly processed foods, foods that are packaged that have long shelf lives. I, I have a, I use a Twinkie here. Uh, I bought these Twinkies 10 years ago and they're still in the package. And when I show them to the students, they, they look like they're ready to eat. You know, this is not natural. Uh, this is th this kind of stuff where you have all these chemicals in the product. This puts your body at risk for damage. It, it's, it's a diet and lifestyle issue for this cancer. Cancer is a diet lifestyle issue. So we are in this civilized world now. We have fast foods on every corner for many in many of the cities. People are sitting in traffic, ingesting uh, toxic air, sitting in front of a computer. Uh, they're not getting the level of exercise, the nutritious foods uh, or, or that we had during the Paleolithic period. So I think awareness uh, simply becomes what, what we need to do. And as I said, we, we have an obesity epidemic. If people were really concerned about preventing cancer and were frightened of they would they, we would not have an obesity epidemic. So uh, uh, these things are so it's up to p individuals' knowledge. They should know what they need to do to reduce their risk. Yeah, and Tom, talk to me about these these young humans, these kids who are having like glioblastoma and brain cancers. So it's obviously not their lifestyle that's leading to that. What would what would kind of pull the trigger on that? Well, you know, as I said, a lot of people were asking me about that and um, developmental abnormalities. We know what, because every tumor that we've looked at, whether in the child or in the adult, has, has the same metabolic readout. They're fermenters. So how did their mitochondria become damaged or corrupted uh, during some developmental process? What, was it a chemical carcinogen? Uh, what, was, what was the exposure? We don't, the answer is we don't know. The only thing we can know is that when the tumor develops, its biochemistry is similar, very similar to that of the tumor in the adult. Now, when we started the conversation, you said that we you measure some markers of metabolic function, metabolic health. Um, can you talk a little bit about those, like what you guys are measuring to determine yeah, where well, somebody sits in this continuum? Yeah, I think you know when we do a blood work analysis, and my colleagues that that are treating cancer as a metabolic disease, the the first thing. The first thing we look at is the blood, and we do a comprehensive analysis of the blood. What's the triglyceride level? Triglycerides are indicative. Low triglycerides are good. Uh, high triglycerides put you at risk for cardiovascular disease. A lot of folks have parasite infections. Uh, the the HDL-LDL ratios are off. Uh, a lot of the blood markers are off. And and you say to yourself, well, they got type 2 diabetes. Their, their insulin level is... They have problems with insulin. They have problems with glucose. They have pro they have a high blood blood pressure, hypertension. They they have a lot of different things that you can pick up with blood markers. So they're already out of metabolic homeostasis. So the question is how you bring them back, and the answer is what we try to do. And again, this I don't want to say it's a blanket approach for everyone. And again, I don't do any of this, but my colleagues do, uh, and we're writing the treatment protocol so the physicians actually have a, a, a handle on the whole thing. You know, oh, we try to get them to stop eating carbohydrates um, for as long as we can, like ten days to fourteen days. All of a sudden, they their blood they start getting into the the glucose ketone index zone, and you start to see you start to see all the markers coming back online. If they have parasites, you can give them an antiparasitic. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the antiparasitics, uh, mbendazole, 
a, a worm parasite uh, drug, um, also targets the metabolism in the tumor cells. So the parasite and, and, and the cancer cell uh, use a common form of energy. And when you, you know, it's, so it's unbelievable, the, the parasite drug. Now, and what really kills me and gets me very, very upset is that in India, you can buy this embendazole for about 50 cents a tablet. And as soon as the industry realized it was a useful for managing cancer, in the United States, they make it now $350 a tablet for the same, for the same. This is what we do. We, I call it Scarelli the drugs, which means, remember Martin Scarelli? He, he was the most hated man in America. He jacked mm. the prices of everything up. Everybody got really angry with him. Well, well the, the industry does many of the same kinds of things. As soon as a drug is realized to have some therapeutic benefit of, against cancer, uh, it's it's all already the price is jacked up to uh, exorbitant levels. This shouldn't. This is in, in my mind. This is immoral to do something like this. So, uh, um, but anyway, we we're learning more and more about various kinds of drugs that by themselves may not have the full power, but when you put the package together with the diet uh, lifestyle drug combos, uh, you start to see tremendous therapeutic benefit where cancer cells can be gradually eliminated. Without, without causing uh, minimal, if any, toxicity to the rest of the body. As a matter of fact, the patients who come out of uh, um, the press pulse therapeutic strategy, so the patient comes into the clinic, as I said, he has many comorbidities besides cancer. So the idea is get a, hold, get, get a grab hold of it, bring him back to some med state. Uh, then we do the uh, pulse uh, chip, um, dosage timing and scheduling, and then we gradually hammer away at the patient. Interestingly enough, diabetes goes away, hypertension goes away, high blood pressure goes away, and the cancer uh, becomes managed. So the person em uh, emerges from metabolic therapy a hell of a lot healthier than they were before they entered into this. So this is this is unbelievable. This is the way it's yeah. going to happen. How if, long? If people want this, this will be what they can get. How long is that typical intervention? Someone comes into your clinic or in to work with the, the physicians you're working with, and, and what is the typical it, protocol it's, duration? It's very individual. It's very individual. Some people have to bite the bullet for a year or two. Other Others seem to respond really, really fast. So again, it's a very individual thing. Uh, you know, how motivated is the patient? How compliant is the patient? Now, a lot of this falls on the shoulders of the patient. Yeah. So the patient has the readouts. Like if you look at our, our paper that we published on Pablo Kelly from Devon, England, who was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, and he, uh, he was given only nine months to live. He didn't want any radiation, no chemo, no radiation, no steroids, no surgery, nothing. So he just took the metabolic therapy, and they, everybody said he was crazy, and he, he did all this. So the tumor, the tumor grew very, very slowly, and after three years, he had it uh, surgically debulked. Um, and they said, oh, it was at first it was an inoperable tumor. And then after three years of metabolic therapy, it became operable. Um, so he had most of it taken out. And, um, you know, he had, uh, I have five years of, of daily glucose ketone index measurement. So the paper shows every person in the world that when it looks at what Pablo did, look at what he did. Every single day, we have the dates, the time when he took, uh, when he measured his blood glucose and ketones. And then, but the but now Pablo is nine year survivor. The glioblastoma is still there. Is Pablo cured? The answer is no. Is Pablo alive? The answer is yes. Is his quality of life good? Absolutely. He has an occasional seizure, 
but he gets along with himself. He has a family now that he didn't have. He's got a, two kids that he, that he... So, I mean, how long will Pablo live? We have no idea, but he's alive now far longer than he would have ever been, was ever expected to live. So, so the answer to your, your question, Ben, is we don't know because a lot of these folks are, are still in the, in the pipeline. They're still surviving. They have a good quality of life. They're living far longer than they were expected to live. And they're all considered terminal stage four kinds of uh, cancers. We've seen it with breast. We've seen it with colon. Uh, we, we've seen it with liver. Uh, we, we've seen it with all these different kinds of cancers. So people say, well, why are there no clinical trials if this is so important? And the question is, who's going to pay for the clinical trial, right? A company that would realize that none of the drugs they're pushing are really important and we're going to, right? Think about it. Doesn't no, make any oh. sense, right? Totally makes sense. So, and the, and the other thing too is who's trained to do this? And the answer is not many physicians even know about what I just said. Mm. You know, the Mayo Clinic physicians think uh, glucose has no role. And uh, one of my, uh, one of the people with cancer emailed me and said, he went to the Mayo, Mayo Clinic and the person said glucose had nothing to do with cancer. And I said, what are these people living under a rock? Right. I mean, we published, other people have published so many papers showing that there's a direct relationship between how fast your cancer grows and the level of sugar in your blood, glucose. Yeah. So, I mean, this is common knowledge to those of us who know about uh, energy metabolism. Sure. Is, th is there a camp opposing your view on cancer right now? So, is there a camp saying that yeah, glucose doesn't matter or the research you guys are saying is ineffective? Uh, no, there's no camp because the, the scientific evidence so is strong. overwhelming. Yeah. The, the problem is, is that the folks that say uh, glucose has nothing to do with cancer uh, know, know zero about the biology of the disease they're treating. Yeah. And this is another scary point that I, I, I feel that's a tragedy of monumental proportions that um, most, many, I don't know about most, but certainly far many more than there should be, are clueless uh, about the biology of, of the disease they're treating patients with. Uh, they never heard. What I just said to you is un unknown. Then, and the other thing is they become extremely, unfortunately, defensive. They say, well, if it were so important, I would have heard about it. Um, well, who's going to go spread the word that cancer is a mitochondrial metabolic disease? Because if you go to the NCI website, the first thing they see about cancer is cancer is a genetic disease. So how could the National Cancer Institute of the United States be so profoundly wrong in their understanding of what cancer is? So they give grants to the top hospitals to study cancer. And most of that stuff is hunting for gene targets. You know, you even hear it advertised on TV at night. Oh, this patient has an EGFR receptor, epidermal growth factor receptor. And we're going to use this special immunotherapy. What the hell is that? They're, they're fermenters for crying out loud. Yeah. The tumors are fermenting. You want to kill them? You take away their fermentable fuels. If you target the EGFR receptor, yeah, you'll kill a few cancer cells. But here's the problem. The EGFR receptor is on some of our normal cells, and all of a sudden you start blowing out somebody's liver and kidneys as a result of trying to kill their tumor cells. Yeah. So uh, you run the risk of what we call hyperprogressive disease. We don't want it. Yet. Metabolic therapy eliminates all that kind of stuff. And this could just be speculative, Tom, but it sounds like you're talking about an intervention that requires a nutrition, um, maybe exercise, lifestyle interventions, and maybe the occasional uh, pharmaceutical intervention at lower dose. Whereas it sounds like the the genetic approach is mostly, you know, pharmaceuticals, immunotherapies, things that are going to be a little bit more medically inclined. So there could be some uh, attachment there to, you know, that that may perhaps being one of the the motivating factors. They can drive more research. Well, yeah, but what are the research they're driving? More of the same. 
We, we have over 1,600 people a day dying from cancer. It gets, oh, worse. Yeah. We gets worse every year. You know, breast cancer has replaced heart disease, number one killer of women. So you, you start to ask yourself. Now, I'm not saying we throw out all the different tools that we have in, 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 in the, available to us. I just think uh, chemotherapy could be completely reevaluated uh, as to the dosage and timing of which you're giving these patients. Yeah. Uh, radiation therapy uh, could be strategic uh, when used in the appropriate way. The tumor cells seem to become more, more susceptible to radiation therapy. I, uh, I accept the brain. I, I would say never. The human brain should never, under any condition, be irradiated, period. Uh, it could, in fact, we published big papers showing how most of the GBM patients are dying as the result of the standard of care itself, uh, as much as it is for the tumor. And that has to stop. That, that's one of the things that, that, really, that really has to stop. But, but you know, you use um, immunotherapies, for example. They target cells that have a similar kind of epitope on their surface. So if we use metabolic therapy to pare down the majority of the tumor, remove the blood vessels, reduce the inflammation, the surviving cells after that treatment may in fact all have a common epitope because they were able to still hang on despite all of these treatments. Now an immunotherapy could come in as the final step in eliminating the final uh, tumor cell. Again, you don't do it at the beginning. You do it after you've shrunken this thing down and make it much more manageable. Even surgery is far more effective if you have a small circumscribed mass than if you have this big, angry, ugly thing. Everything ha everything is there. It's just that you need to do it in the right context. Because once you understand the biology of the problem, like we do, then uh, a lot of these things could be used in a much greater, uh, uh, with a greater efficacy. Yeah. So again, um, we, know, we know what we need to do. We have all the tools necessary. We just have to rearrange the deck. Don, do you think a ketogenic diet should be used prophylactically to help people uh, maybe on, on like a yearly basis or a biannual basis? You know, I don't know what to say about that. Um, like a lot of people do water only fat. Anything you can bring your GKI down uh, to 2.0 or below is going to be highly therapeutic. Just in general for everybody. So yeah. not someone, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. A lot of, a lot of these health gurus are out there to get their GKIs down. Um, how long would you want to do that? That's another question. Right. You know, water water only fasting will do it, but it's hard. Um, you know, I, I did it. You know, it's really, it's really. How long did it take you to get in that, into that state? Well, I mean, I I went three days and I still didn't get into the full state. But I tell you, what's easier is if you go for like ten or twelve days on zero carbohydrate, mm -hmm. uh, just uh, whatever you eat, have very very extremely low carbs, low glycemic. Uh, the jump then to water only fasting becomes much less stressful. Yeah. Uh, the brain is addicted. Our, all of our brains are addicted to glucose. Yeah. Uh, um, and boy, it's to try to break that addiction is just as can can be just as uncomfortable as breaking an addiction to nicotine, uh, to alcohol, to any kind of a, a drug. So uh, um, again, we're addicted, and we're trying to remove the addiction. But we we evolved as a species that never was addicted to glucose. Sure. So, uh, um, so we also have to recognize that's our natural state is unaddicted to glucose. Or maybe we were addicted, we just didn't have access to it in such. Well, we have it. That's why. Yeah, but that's why we evolved to love sweets mm. uh, because they never were part of the, the the natural environment. Honey, okay. Well, you have to uh, risk your get, face getting stung ten times uh, by bees just to get the sweet from the honey or fruits during their ripe season. So, uh, uh, but these were tra these were seasonal things. They weren't yeah. year-round things. Now we have year-round high highly processed carbohydrates all the time in the yeah. diet. 
putting us at risk for all kinds of things. Tom, where do you sit on um, supplemental ketones? You know, Dom is a big guy on supplemental ketones. I, I think that um, if your blood sugar is not reduced, you're going to piss out the ketones uh, very quickly. So you you really need to lower your blood sugar to have supplemental ketones uh, provide a, a more powerful effect. So people can't go out and say, okay, I'm going to take this um, ice cream cone or, 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 or this uh, burrito or whatever the hell I'm going to eat. And I, to make it, I'm, I'm going to take supplemental ketones. No, no, no. That's not... You can, I think we can use supplement. Once the patient is in therapeutic ketosis, uh, supplemental ketones can force higher, can push the, the, could potentially lower glucose more, as Dom, as Dom showed, and elevate ketones more. So again, it puts more pressure on tumors. So don't forget, our, all, all of my research is focusing on killing cancer cells um, uh, uh, without toxicity. That's our, that's our laser focus. How do we kill cancer? How many different ways can we kill tumor cells uh, without causing toxicity? And if supplemental ketones can push these cancer cells over the brink uh, a little bit faster, we're, we're, we're all for it. And, and we have some experiments that we're planning to do, adding them to the diet drug cocktail. Tom, um, I think I first heard you on Peter Tia's in 2018. What has changed in your approach or your belief system in the last five years? Well, I, I, I've collected more hard evidence to support uh, what I'm saying, and we've published more case reports of humans uh, that have engaged in this uh, stage four breast cancers, brain cancer, liver cancer. So I'm working with physicians uh, where we're, tr we're, we're using metabolic therapy to treat humans. We're also learned uh, we, as I said, we developed a, a really good model for pediatric high-grade glioma, and we uh, uh, in very young mice, and we're testing diet drug cocktails, and we're absolutely convinced. And we were shocked to see how powerful uh, ketogenic diets were uh, with different kinds of drugs that were considered toxic when used alone. So uh, uh, I've become even more certain that what I'm saying is correct. Yeah. Uh, mainly, mainly because of the research that we have done and the outcomes that we have seen. When you see diet drug cocktails, are you referring to cancer med cancer drugs specifically or actually like things known to, to decrease body weight and blood sugar? No, uh, for cancer specifically. Okay. okay. I, 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 you know, I, 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 I know a lot of the guys in the CrossFit uh, world and, um, you know, those guys are always super healthy and they're always, they're always doing all these kinds of things. You know, I, I, I think it's great to prevent cancer if you know if you know that you can stay in these in these states for cancer prevention. But you know, most people in the country that that have cancer, they, it's they have cancer. They want to know what they can do now. That yes, they say, oh yes, I know I shouldn't have been overweight. Yes, I know I shouldn't have smoked. Yes, I know I should have had more exercise. Yeah, blah blah blah. But now I have cancer. What are you going to do for me? And and as I said, you know, when you have a uh, 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 1,600 people over. It's almost now 1,700 people a day dying from cancer. And the ones that survive, don't forget we have a million fi uh, five uh, ca new cases uh, diagnosed. And, and, and we have a lot of cancer survivors from standards of care. But man, a lot of them are beat up severely uh, from the massive radiation and poisonous chemicals. And their digestion is screwed up. Their Their mental health is screwed up. Their their hormonal balances are screwed up. Their gut is screwed up um, as the result of being treated inappropriately with very toxic procedures. 
So again, the, the, the goal here is to manage the disease effectively without having those uh, horrible adverse uh, consequences uh, of the current situation. And I know for a fact, un uh, I know absolutely for a fact that this will be the standard of care at some point in the future. Yeah. But there are large, you know, resistance uh, to this uh, on all, but they don't, it's not a blowback. It's just, they don't ignore it. They just don't discuss it. Uh, you know, um, yeah. or they'll brush, brush it off. Like a lot of people, many people will say, oh, it has to be repeated. It's been repeated hundreds and hundreds of times. Don't you read the literature? That argument doesn't hold, has to be repeated. If it were so important, I would have learned about it. Well, why didn't you learn about it in medical school? You should have learned about it there. No, they're talking about cancer as a genetic disease, not a metabolic disease. So you can go right through the list of things that are in the way, the, the walls that prevent metabolic therapy beco from becoming the standard of care. Um, do you have a specific ratio of macronutrients that you advocate for people getting into a ketogenic state to, to get into this um, specific you know, ratio? It, it's hard. As I said, uh, I've seen people with a uh, vegans do it. I've seen carnivores do it. I've seen yeah. Mediterranean guys do it. But you know, if vegans have trouble, they might want to do carnivore. Carnivore has trouble, they might want to do vegan. But uh, usually, plants. It's harder to get into the zone with plants, uh, from my experience, because plants have more carbs than 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 yeah. meat. Um, don't forget, we evolved as omnivores, so so we can we can you know we are very flexible in our diets. Also. You have to deal with cultural issues, religious and cultural issues on diets. But but you know if you're really concerned, stop eating completely. Just do water only fasting. Uh, you know if you're worried about eating this or that, uh, because water only fasting will bring you into a state of therapeutic ketosis, no question about it. But then you'd want to maintain that, and then you have to decide what you can and cannot eat in order to maintain the GKI ratio. Um, Tom, is there anything that we, I know there's an enormous amount of stuff that we could discuss, but is there anything that's super important that we haven't discussed that the listeners should know about your research and what you're currently studying? Uh, well, as I said, we're, right now we're perfecting dosage, timing, and scheduling. Uh, and that's considered unsexy science. You know, uh, what's the mechanism? And they always want to know what the mechanism I would rather say, what's the outcome? Mm -hmm. uh, let, let's look at, do you have something that's really effective? Uh, and and uh, yeah, we do. Okay, how can we perfect it? How do we make it even better than it is? Um, and again, that comes to dosage, timing, and scheduling. So, uh, um, and we're learning some of these uh, re repurposed drugs, some of these kinds of things um, that are uh, so. So, yeah, uh, we're just trying to find the best way that we can maintain uh, highest uh, uh, quality of life, progression-free survival, and um, and improved overall survival. Uh, and, and we haven't cured. Uh, the only thing I, I can say that we've cured is a dog uh, with mast cell tumor on his face. And I published that paper in, 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 in Frontiers in Nutrition. And um, th that dog uh, at seven years old developed a mast cell tumor on the, on the lip, which grew. Interestingly enough, the, the woman was told that she, the dog should have radiation and cure suggested and she didn't want it, the pet owner. And um, she put the dog on a, on a vegan diet, a, 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 a raw vegetable and steamed fish diet. And the tumor grew faster. So, mm -hmm. so uh, for, it even got bigger. And then she heard what we were saying and she got the raw chicken 
with the bone in it, uh, some fish oil, raw, uh, raw egg, cut the dog's calories by 40%. And within four or five months, this tumor uh, disappeared completely and followed this, this dog uh, until it died. Uh, at 15 and a half years, it was a pit bull. Pit bull and they, they generally don't live more than 14 years. Well, this dog lived to be 15 years. The cancer never, never came back. So it di- the dog died from um, uh, heart failure. So when you say that's the real only, I don't know, that's the way I think you know you're cured. So you're a young guy, you know, God forbid you get cancer, you do metabolic therapy and you die at 97 from, from heart failure, but not the cancer never returned. You mm-hmm. can say on your deathbed that I was cured from cancer. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, it always could, because people fear that it always could come back at some point. Right. Right. Uh, so if it never comes back, you know you were cured. Is there someone that listeners can actually access that information once you publish it? Do you have a specific? Yeah, I, that well, I, that, that's an important point because you know some people say, "Well, where's the evidence?" I published it. Okay, so you just put my name into Google and say publications, and all the papers will pop up. Yeah, and people are free to read the details of of what I'm saying, the actual experimental design, and, and all of the things that 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 we do, and uh, the support. Most of our support comes from private foundations and philanthropy. There are folks that uh, give us money because they know we're on the right path to the resolution of cancer, making it a disease that's quite manageable, and they feel they'd like to be part of that. You know, so there are good there are good people out there that say, "Listen, this is where this is where it's action." Now, there are a lot of folks. Uh, I don't say a lot, but there are some folks that are entrepreneurs, and they're trying to figure out. How, how to how to make money on this whole system, um, which is only natural because the, the business of America is business. And uh, I'm not opposed to anybody who can figure out how to make money on this metabolic therapy. But right now, uh, we have seen a lot of them scratching their heads trying to figure out how, how can we how can we make a lot of money on diet on diet drug co- of repurposed drug? None of these things are are. You have to patent, you know, people make a lot of money on patented things. And, um, you know, how do you patent diet drug uh, therapies where you just kind of put them all together? It's kind of hard because it's very hard to protect something like this. And also the patient themselves become a prime uh, a prime participant in the management. You see, I'm not into that. Um, I have a great job at Boston College as a professor. If someone else would like to develop a clinic or, or, or set up clinics to do this for patients, then... My job is to prove that it works. My, I, I get pleasure uh, out of seeing people who are walking the planet who who, who should have been dead, uh, telling me they feel great, they look great. Uh, that's rewarding enough for me. Yeah. Um, and to know, more importantly, to know that the science behind what I'm saying can account for the outcome of the procedures. That's what the most exciting thing is. Because yeah. once you understand the biology and biochemistry, then you know what you need to do to manage this this, this disorder without toxicity. And when you do that, you start to see uh, the outcomes that would be predicted based on the science. So with respect to uh, dosage and duration, that will be posted just as a research study and we'll be able to find that on Google? Yeah, well, uh, doses, timing, and scheduling are still in the process. We're, we're, we, we're, our big protocol will be dealing with that. And again, the physician will now have to become knowledgeable about the metabolism of their patients to know which dosage timing and scheduling might work best for them. Um, so again, it's it's not like one shoe fits all. 
uh, now you really need to be a physician. You need to practice what you're doing. You really need to now to know what your patient's metabolism is. Um, you need to know the blood work. You need to know these kinds of things. And then you make a decision. Uh, you w work with a team of people, uh, nutrition, dietitians, oncologists that understand the, 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 the mechanism behind what they're doing. So again, there's going to be a lot of retraining. Uh, but a lot of these guys could, could do it right away if they just understood the concepts. And then the other situ situation is, will the system allow them to do this? So the standard of care is it should never have been written in granite, but it seems to have been written in granite. It's very hard to uh, overturn uh, these procedures, especially for brain cancer, which is killing the majority of people that have glioblastoma. The treatment itself, what you're doing to these poor folks, I've, I've published papers after paper after paper showing exactly how radiation, steroids, and the temozolomide are actually killing the patients. And when, like Pablo didn't do any of that. He's doing fine. And then they say, oh, no, he's a, a fluke. He's only one of a kind. Well, how many other flukes would we have if we, if we did what Pablo did? The, the, God forbid we do, because can, can you imagine if, if we get a, a large number of people living nine years with a, with a diagnosed a glioblastoma? You know, this would uh, over, overturn a whole, a whole uh, way of doing things right now. But, you know, I'm not, I, I don't care. Uh, what what I need to do is know how many people we can keep alive with that with a quality of life that they're that, and they feel good about themselves. That's that's the goal, and it um, doesn't make any difference if it's breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, bladder cancer. Doesn't make any difference. Uh, we want to see people surviving longer than they should have ever been predicted to survive. I appreciate your passion so much. It's so clear to me you found what your calling is in life, and uh, it shows. And I'm so grateful for you making the time and. Ultimately, continue to do what you do, supporting us. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that are going to benefit from this podcast. Uh, so, Tom Seafried, thank you so much for making yeah, it. Yeah, and remember, Don Di uh, or uh, Travis Christofferson, who wrote the book Tripping Over the Truth, yep. Rise of the Metabolic uh, Approach to Cancer, his foundation of uh, foundation for metabolic therapy supports our work. Okay. So, if anybody would like to contribute to our research and, and, uh, Philanthropy, every paper that we publish, you'll look at the people who have supported us and we, we name them. So uh, we put them in the name, of the, we put their names on the acknowledgement section of who supported the work. And that tells them that their, that their support is actually being seen in peer-reviewed publications. Yeah. We all know someone who has cancer or will get cancer. And I'm sure that's, um, that information will be well-received and hopefully well-handled. Uh, Tom, thank you for making the time. Uh, massively appreciate it, my friend. Okay, take it easy, Ben. Thank you very much. All right, that's a wrap. Ladies and gents, thank you so much for being part of the Muscle Intelligence community. Everyone always asks me to give my takeaways from the podcast, so here they go. I think, uh, in my opinion, a ketogenic diet is an absolute essential tool for everyone to integrate. I think fasting is an essential tool for almost everyone to integrate. There's certain people I think shouldn't fast, but in general, one day a month, Maybe three days a month or three days a quarter, three to five days a quarter is a very good idea to optimize metabolic function. It's been shown to, to optimize for, for longevity, now being shown to optimize for anti-cancer. Guys, just do it. Just work toward it, right? You don't have to start with 72 hours. Start with 24, work to 48, push to 72, and then and beyond. And there's certainly detriments to long-term fasting if you push too hard or if you're not prepared for it or if your body is in a massively stressed state, you can't do it or you don't want to do it. But in general, doing these extended fat water fasts uh, will not only 
have fasting benefits or, or longevity benefits, but also have ketogenic benefits, which ultimately can prove to be an anti-cancer. Um, eating a carbohydrate-reduced diet is just a good idea in general for everyone, or, or most people, if not everyone, at some point. And my typical approach is I like to approach it in a, is a seasonal way. So I know if I'm training really hard and I'm pushing really hard and I'm very active, I can handle some carbohydrates. My body can certainly handle it. And just the nature of a cyclical approach allows your body to become more effective at using fat for fuel, ultimately using these oxidative pathways to generate ATP, which is important in the body, and not overdriving these fermentation pathways like Tom talks about today. And so, in general, carbohydrates uh, are not bad, but uh, processed carbohydrates, which are going to drive blood sugar constantly, is absolutely proven to be bad. So, no, not all macros are created equal. They do absolutely have a different biochemical response in the body. So if I eat a potato, that may be different than a rice cake. That may be different from a chocolate bar. Um, and they all have different, yes, they could have the same macros, but they may be very different physiological biochemical responses in the body. And it's often the chronic exposure. No individual food is bad, in my opinion. No individual food is bad. But if I do something constantly and chronically, that creates the state of my body. And so I really want to pay attention to, well, what's going into my body? And what state am I creating when I eat that or when I consume that or even when I, I participate in those things? It influences what I call this biochemical soup inside our body. And that soup ultimately determines what you look like on the outside, what you feel like uh, on the inside, and ultimately how your body performs as well. And so um, thank you very much to Dr. Tom Seafried for joining me to clarify the metabolic truth of cancer. Hopefully you received something of tremendous value. If you did enjoy this podcast, if you did receive some value, I'd love it if you would share at least one person you know and love loves to live their greatest life in a body of love, ultimately, who maybe has someone who knows cancer or who has cancer, or ultimately, they're trying to overcome cancer themselves. This is a great piece of information that we want to share this with as many people as we possibly can. If it was a little bit complex for you, go ahead and check out the show notes where we will simplify some of the topics and link to some amazing products as well as some amazing studies for you to look a little bit further. Ladies and gents, Ben Pekulski, Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Have a great day. And don't forget to check out our sponsors, Bioptimizers, and use the code MUSCLE10 at checkout. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.